0: Welcome back to this six-part video lecture series that will be your primer into Buddhist Taoist esotericism. It is my hope that you'll see this series as an open invitation to learn more about the occult traditions I practice, and to find from it something that might deepen yours. This fifth installment of the video lecture series was supposed to be titled Syncretism in Chinese Occultism, but I'm scrapping and going with a thought tour of the Chinese occult. We start with the secret of these secrets, heading straight for the most esoteric and most difficult to understand principles of the Chinese occult. Then we'll take a peek into folk shamanism and meet the dangi or spirit mediums, We'll also cover dream work as a traditional shamanistic practice. Let's revisit the three most important influences on occult thought, and that is Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism, and examine the visible ways they impact the practice of the occult. We'll talk about land spirits, traditional Chinese witchcraft, and necromancy, and soul dualism in Chinese thought. We'll briefly cover exorcisms, then close with astral projection in ritual magic. Chinese occultism tends to be rooted fundamentally in a conflation of Buddhist and Taoist principles, and let's start at the root, the deepest part. In Buddhism, Siddhartha, the Buddha, wasn't the first Buddha to come along, by his own admission, and he won't be the last. Also by his own admission, the Buddha was a human being, a mere mortal, who engaged in cultivation practices that led him to become awakened to attain nirvana. Buddha is not a god. Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are not gods and goddesses, at least not in the sense of having been born divine. This is confusing, because from an outsider's point of view, it can look as if Asians worship Buddha or Kuan Yin as a god or goddess. We don't. Well it's complicated. I won't speak on behalf of the Abrahamic faiths and try to explain to you why you bow to God and Jesus, but permit me to explain to you why in Eastern faiths we bow. We do not bow in submission or in idolatry. We bow to show respect, to show that we hold who we're bowing to in high esteem. So we bow to Buddha, we bow to our ancestors, we bow to our elders, and we bow to our parents. In combat, we bow to our rivals. Culturally, our Bao is really, really different from how a Bao is perceived in Christianized nations. Okay, back to the mortal to God narrative. The theme is one you're also going to find crossing over into Taoist pantheons, where lots of Taoist deities and immortals have this backstory where they began life as human. Like the Buddha, through some form of cultivation practice, they become more than human. Once they become more than human, after their awakening, their consciousness becomes one with this universal consciousness. Okay, how am I going to explain this? All right, you and me. First, let's assume neither one of us is psychic or have very severely underdeveloped psychic abilities. Your consciousness, your individuality is very individual, compartmentalized. It's isolated. I can't get through to you and you can't get through to me except, oh, except through the power of words, the magic of words. You can begin to have an influence over me and I can have an influence over you when words and writing are exchanged. Otherwise, You're not really connected to like the rain or to the intangible concept of love or to the intangible concept of war or mercy or even to the animated spirit of a mountain or the spirit of a river, the consciousness of the ocean. You and me, we're totally separate individuals. You and I are mutually exclusive in the sense that you cannot be both of us. You can only be you. Please tell me you're slow with me. Now, let's say you're a little bit psychic and empathic. Suddenly your individual consciousness can mix and tune in to the universal consciousness, to other spirited life around you. You still identify as you and me as totally separate individuals, but because you're a little bit psychic and empathic, you can maybe start to feel quite accurately what it's like to be me, what I'm thinking, how I might behave, because you're somehow tuned in to my spirit. See, your spirit I'm a spirit. A ghost is a spirit. A mountain is a spirit. Fire is a spirit. A fox has a spirit. So there's this spirit encoded into everything, and if you're a little bit psychic and empathic, you can kinda start to intuit the consciousness of all of these spirits. That psychic-empathic connection can be cultivated. There are practices that can strengthen your attunement to that universal consciousness. Now let's enter the realm of psychic theory. In theory, telepathy is when I can send thoughts straight from my mind to yours, or vice versa. I can retrieve thoughts from your mind because in some way I'm connected to your mind. Telekinesis is when I can use my mind, my consciousness, to move physical objects around a room because my consciousness is, in some way, connected to the universal consciousness that connects these objects to the physical world. Take it many steps further, and an awakening, whether you're talking about esoteric Buddhism or Taoism, is, in theory, this moment when your individual consciousness becomes one with that universal consciousness. Now, awakened, you can then flow in and out of anyone's consciousness wavelength. You can attune yourself to the physical world around you and also to the spirit, what we like to call the supernatural world around us. You can now be me and feel who I am and you no longer see any distinction or individuality between you and me. You feel, truly, truly feel that you and I are one, are in union. This is also why, in Buddhist religious doctrine, there's that principle that you achieve awakening through practices of compassion, empathy, and agape love. This awakening into the collective consciousness can almost be described as an omnipotent telepathic and telekinetic power, except because you're so connected to the collective consciousness, you no longer have an individual ego, and so without an individual ego, you also have zero desire to use that power for personal gains. You're still with me, right? None of this is too hard to follow? A bodhisattva in Buddhism, then, under this theory, is a human being who cultivated a connection to that universal consciousness in such a way that they can have an impact on things of this world. Like a very magnified version of the theory of telekinesis and telepathy. Does that make sense? So like the religious theory is, you achieve a level of cultivation of your own consciousness that becomes one with the collective consciousness. So you can be in perfect sympathy with any individual entity of this world. You can put your mind and your powers into my body, no matter where I am in this earthly world or where you are. And if you blink, I blink. If you raise your hand, I raise my hand. You can embody me. And since Buddhas and Bodhisattvas have achieved such an advanced level of cultivation, again in theory, they also transcend their physical bodies and the laws of nature that would otherwise impact the human body. Your consciousness requires a physical body because you're, you know, you're not Buddha. So how we explain this is Buddha, after being awakened, his consciousness no longer requires a physical body. A Buddha is a personal human consciousness that loses individuality entirely and becomes one with the universal collective consciousness. They've returned to Source in a manner of speaking, and so they also aren't affected by any laws of space-time. Again, religious theory. A Bodhisattva is one step short of nirvana because the Bodhisattva vows to not become total oneness with the universal consciousness so that part of that Bodhisattva's individual consciousness can remain behind here in our material world to be of service. And in doing so, because they've got all this cultivated power and thus a really strong connection through all the lines and networks of collective consciousness, have the ability to help us out. They have amplified telepathy and telekinesis, again, in a crude manner of speaking, and so we as humans can pray to them for help. When we pray, we're trying to strengthen that thread linking that particular deity and us through the threads of the universal collective consciousness. That's what Buddhists do. They call out to these Bodhisattvas or Buddhas for help in times of profound suffering in hopes that the awakened ones will use their abilities to save us from suffering. You know, bat an eye themselves, so we bat an eye in a way that will empower us in the way we need to be empowered. They can also send their powers through the channels of the external world around us to save us, hence invocation and evocation. When miracles in your physical world happen after prayer, in religious theory, that's the telekinesis I was talking about, again, crude phrasing, which is achieved from becoming awakened, and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are the awakened ones. Specific Bodhisattvas or divinities may cultivate in such a way to be more attuned to certain aspects of this world, which is why a particular Bodhisattva might in a more defined way embody compassion and mercy in the case of Kuan Yin or more embody thunder and what thunder represents, the hand of power, as in the case of Jingguang so Pusa. Certain mantras and sutras are thus believed to be encoded in such a way that they strengthen that telepathic or telekinetic connection between your individual consciousness and that Bodhisattva. Oh, by the way, that was esoteric or mystical Buddhism in a plain and simple, as plain and simple as I could manage it, nutshell. Real talk, you're supposed to have achieved some super advanced initiated levels of religious mumbo-jumbo and jumped through lots of top secret hula hoops to have reached the point of getting that understanding. People study esoteric Buddhist texts for decades before they get here. So really, really, you're welcome. Taoism very much gets syncretized with esoteric Buddhism because just change some of the phrasing and vocabulary, and that's pretty much esoteric Taoism as well. Now why did I begin there, spending a really long time on what feels like a completely irrelevant tangent from the title of this video? Because all of Chinese occultism is premised on this. Even if it's not this overt conscious mission toward achieving Awakening, and even if a practitioner of Chinese occultism never even thinks of any of these more esoteric aspects of theory, you don't have to for it to be there, it is the bedrock of Chinese occultism whether or not you care. So like I said, I started at the root of Chinese occultism, the deepest part of this system. I wasn't entirely sure if I wanted to even include that whole bit in this series, but then I realized I kind of have to. That's the whole point of Taoist and Buddhist esoteric study and Chinese occult theory. Occult practice is about striving to become more attuned to that collective consciousness that in Buddhist doctrine is referred to as an awakening that the Buddhas achieve and semi-awakening of the Bodhisattvas. The distinction, maybe, of what is objectively occult practice and what is esoteric Buddhism, which is inseparable from religion, is occult practice and therefore Taoist esotericism diverges at least into two different paths. In Taoist occult practice, you can achieve awakening while self-imposing a moral code and morality cultivation so that you lose your ego when you awaken into collective consciousness. Or you can choose not to, and try to maintain your ego, your individualism, when you awaken into collective consciousness. So you awaken into the embodiment of the universe, but at the same time, remain fully conscious of who you once were, and you choose to stay who you once were. Hence the Taoist pursuit of immortality. Esoteric Buddhism, which is going to emphasize morality because it is a religion, would assert that you cannot awaken without losing your ego, and that cultivation must, must be on the straight and narrow path. That straight and narrow path must follow the Buddhist moral code, again, because it's a religion, so that when you awaken, you lose your ego, your individuality, to become one with that collective consciousness. You awaken into the embodiment of the universe and you no longer have any desire to stay attached to yourself, to who you were. Hence the Buddhist pursuit of nirvana, enlightenment. Where Taoist occultism can get a bad rep is the notable divergence from the Buddhist religious pursuit of detaching from your ego, your sense of individualism. There are Taoist occult practitioners who seek advanced cultivation and connection to the universal without ever wanting to surrender the ego. It's choosing not to take the measure to relinquish the ego in the process of cultivation toward the Godhead. It's almost a different form of cultivation toward awakening. It's seeking to awaken without losing the self. Esoteric Buddhism, on the other hand, tends to be almost all about losing the ego and detaching from that ego. That's kind of the hallmark of Buddhism. The reason many forms of Taoist occultism gets syncretized with Buddhism is because Buddhism provides almost the perfect religious model for Taoist cultivation practices if what they seek is awakening that includes detaching from the ego, or a more harmonious form of awakening where you seek oneness with nature rather than overthrow of the current nature to replace it with yours. Because that's what happens if you keep your ego and awaken into collective consciousness. It's a form of seeking to replace what's already there with what it is you want. Apocalyptic visions in Chinese occultism are premised on this foretelling that eventually someone, a form of messiah, is going to seek awakening without losing the ego and in doing so become omnipotent and seek to exercise that omnipotence for personal, self-centered gain. To that end, the physical world in its current manifestation will be destroyed, to be replaced by a new world in that messianic figure's image. And yes, in esoteric Taoism, there's definitely a strong theme of a prophesied messiah to come. In Buddhism, the prophesied messiah, no, I mean, you can sort of make that equivalence, but there's Maitreya, the next Buddha that will return to this world to establish a new world order. Okay, I don't really have a good segue to transition from that to what I want to cover next, so I'm just going to, we're just going to move on. I want to address six essential influences in Chinese occultism, and we'll take each one in turn. Folk shamanism, what we refer to as Taoist philosophy, Buddhism, Confucianism, always accounting for local or regional land spirits in your craft, and then what often gets lumped into the category of witchcraft. Since we begin with the belief that everything is connected, this pantheistic view of the universe and divinity, sometimes to fix a problem on Earth, you've got to interact with the celestial realms or the underworld, or hell realm, and that's where folk shamanism comes into play. Channeling spirit entities is a prominent feature in Chinese occultism. This is when you communicate with a spirit entity by allowing that spirit to take possession of your physical body and also your mind. The spirit then speaks through the one who is possessed, sends its powers through the human in order to heal the sick or give prophecies. Historically, there were many purposes for channeling spirits. It might be used to get answers about why a kingdom is experiencing famine, drought, flooding, etc., and what can be done about it. The emperor will have a court priestess or priest channeling the gods and divine answers for the kingdom. So it can be used as a form of oracle or prophecy. In some cultures, during the holiday or celebration of a particular deity, someone might channel that deity so that the deity can be present during the celebration. A subset of spirit channeling and spirit possession practices is the Donggi. I'm going to reference it in Taiwanese rather than Mandarin Chinese because my familiarity with this practice is strictly in the southern Taiwanese cultural context. The best I can do in terms of translating that is a servant of the divine, and then give you some context for what that would mean to me from an Eastern paradigm. The first word servant can also be translated to child or descendant, but implies not having any capacity for thinking or acting for yourself. Entirely dependent on others. So dependent is another good word here. Uh, When we say divine, it does not bear with it a celestial or beneficent implication. The etymological roots here are more about divination, actually. Divination and prophecy, speaking in tongues on behalf of the gods. So it's not divine the noun, it's almost like divine the verb. The Dangi in southern Taiwan and southern China often get categorized as a form of shamanism. I don't know if I agree, but for the lazy purposes of consistency, I will for now. Dangi are mediums who engage in a form of spirit possession. I'm now treading into very controversial ground here. And that's because who a donkey is, even its historical origins, will vary in answer depending on who you ask. The donkey will generally resort to childlike behavior, and therefore speak nonsensically in tongues, which are accepted as the words of a particular god or goddess. In the photograph you see on screen to the right, there's that representation of syncretized Buddhism, which you see in the framed painting, and in Taoism, the three statues in front of the painting. Since this is a subject I've personally done a lot of academic research on, I'm going to do my best to be impartial and just examine it from an anthropological perspective, or at least try. The Donggi have historically been associated with the lower classes, the less educated, those with less access, and the rural regions of China and Taiwan. It's only in the last few decades that you're seeing a revivalist effort where you have this flip-flop and urban, more educated Asians are trying to go back to their roots and revisiting these practices. Now, why were they historically associated with the lower classes? In the syncretism of Buddhism into Chinese occultism, you have this attitude that good karma means you are reborn into fortune and privilege, so the richer and more powerful you are, the closer to divinity you are, because it's through good karma that you got rich and powerful, right? Makes sense? Hence, the Emperor is believed to be handpicked by Heaven to rule the country, the Mandate of Heaven. Eh, people and their crazy logic. (laughs) So only the elite, the nobles, the educated and literate, had or should have connection to heaven, even the authority to contact heaven. Yeah, I know. Now we get to the good part, the dangi. This is when the tables get turned on the rich and powerful. The philosophy behind the dongi is that the rich and powerful have failed the gods. So the gods go straight to the people and handpick from the people, individuals who will speak on their behalf since the rich and powerful have failed to do so. Claims arise that these shamanistic practices of the Dongyi are the most direct descendants of the shamans of Chinese antiquity, right back to the shamanic king, Yu the Great, during the Xia Dynasty, 2100-1600 to 1600 BC. In other words, tying this back to Buddhist religion, instead of this divine right to speak for the gods getting reincarnated down the lineages of the elite and powerful, that divine right gets reincarnated into the peasant class straight to the people. Is this true? And by true, I don't even mean factually, scientifically true, I just mean is this even historically documented? I have no idea. I can only tell you what I know through oral tradition. So the dongi are commoners who speak for the gods because those in power have failed to do so. These dongi are gifted with the ability to become gods, or more accurately, a god or powerful spirit can enter their bodies and be channeled through these individuals' bodies and minds. What I've found interesting is this concept of spirit possession and speaking in tongues that are intended to be prophetic, the Word of God or Word of the Gods, looks almost exactly the same no matter which part of the world you go to or which occult tradition you're talking about, whether you're talking about the Pentecostal Christians of the rural south here in the United States, or voodoo practices in Haiti, like there's something oddly similar about it all. I'm definitely not saying they're the same, but there is a vibe that remains the same across these cultures and diverse traditions, don't you think? Practices within this spirit possession tradition also runs across a whole spectrum. On the more extreme end, a donkey engages in self-inflicted physical harm and the possession ritual gets quite bloody. You saw that in some of the photographs featured earlier. There's a ball and chain where the ball is studded with nails and a donkey will whip himself with the ball and chain until he's covered in blood. There's also a scepter outfitted with nails and that's also used to beat oneself and then there's a serrated sword used to cut oneself to draw blood. Possessed by a god, this dongi can deliver the words of the gods, messages from heaven, you know, while beating himself into bloody oblivion, give prophecies, heal the sick, and so on. Basically perform magic and miracles. So the reason why I see a distinction between the dongi and shamanism is because in Chinese shamanism, there is this element of control over your own consciousness while you navigate the spirit realm. The shaman is in control of the situation, you know what I mean? In the practice of the dongi, they're not in control. The god that has possessed the human body is the one in control. I speculate one of the reasons for the self-flagellation is to prove to the onlookers that this person is now truly and actually possessed by a god. Because what normal human being could withstand such pain and torment, right? So the self-flagellation is a form of proof, I think, to demonstrate to the audience that the dongi has truly become something beyond human. The other feature of folk shamanism that I want to address is dream work. Within the umbrella of Chinese occultism, there is also this shamanistic practice of going to the underworld and to other realms while you sleep. Is it dreaming or a lucid dream? I don't really know. I'm not entirely sure. The belief is, at night, after you go to sleep, your soul travels to a different world, a spirit world, and there you can talk to the dead, talk to the undead, and a whole cast of different species of spirit entities. There you are given answers to the problems folks here in the physical living world have been facing, and so you retrieve solutions, you return with messages for the living. There's a belief that this is physiological to a certain degree, where it's something you're born with. You just tend to have your consciousness transported to different realms while you sleep, and you almost feel a sense of control and decision-making while navigating those realms. So dream work is another form of Chinese shamanism. Alright, that's enough of shamanism for an introductory video. Here, I just want to return your attention to Taoist philosophies and the texts associated with Laozi and Zhuangzi, which you'll find have a big influence over the moral codes set by certain Taoist magical lineages. I think there's no denying that the doctrines of preeminent Taoist philosophers form the skeleton of Chinese occult tradition. We already covered the history of how Taoist thought developed, how you see the philosophies of Laozi and Zhuangzi permeated throughout the Chinese culture, and Taoist metaphysics. So if I've been doing alright, then at this point you've got a pretty good handle on how Taoist philosophy converges with Chinese occultism. This you already know by now, and that's the mixing of Buddhist religion with Taoist ritual practices among Chinese occultists. We already covered some of the impact of Buddhist religious doctrine on divinity and karma. Earlier in this video, we started at the deepest part of buddhist taoist syncretism. Now let's examine the surface religious iconography, venerated Buddhas and Bodhisattvas you would find in Shingon Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism are prevalent throughout traditional practices of the occult. Cultivation rituals, meditation modalities, and other esoteric practices from Vajrayana Buddhism are adopted by Chinese occultists. When you examine the structure of many Taoist orthodox lineages, they get a lot of their structure from Buddhist infrastructure, the requirement of a formal initiation. You don't just wake up one morning, and decide you're a priest or priestess of XYZ Taoist tradition, you can wake up one morning and say you practice Taoist magic, sure, but if pressed further with the question of lineage and tradition, the only way you can say you practice this tradition or that tradition is after formal initiation by the collective members of that tradition. Oh, and it's totally like American college fraternities and sororities where you have a pledge book and you have to copy down this long ass family tree of like your shifu or teacher was this person and his sifu was that person, whose sifu was that person, blah 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 and blah all the way up to like the founders of the orthodox tradition. It's totally like a fraternity. Just saying. My opinion. Anyone who says, no way, it's nothing like a social frat is taking themselves a little bit too seriously. Oh, and the more old school ones are very formalized. You vow to uphold certain codes of conduct. You have to, by spiritual contract, agree to do certain things and not to do certain things. And if you break those vows, oh boy, let's just say you couldn't pay me a hundred million dollars to switch places with you. I see this attitude as traces of Chinese legalism syncretized into these occult traditions. We covered legalism briefly in a previous video. I actually think this is why so many orthodox Taoist magical lineages seem to run in a way that doesn't seem harmonized with Taoist philosophy. Legalism is like kind of the total opposite of Taoist philosophy. Taoist philosophy is la la la, let it be, I love you for you, we are all equal in the eyes of the Tao because we are all the supreme Tao. And legalism is no, you inferior idiotic piece of shit, I am better than you and you are going to do it my way or I will cut you. As a result, the culture, ideologies, and the politics of China can be a paradox. On one hand, you do see Taoism ingrained into the consciousness of the people where the assumption is we are all equally a part of the divine, we are all divine by nature. But on the other, political thought does seem to carry on the legacies of legalism, where you need to micromanage people, control and censor, because people are inherently evil, lazy, and stupid, so you need to enforce structure and rules into their lives to prevent them from being evil, lazy, and stupid. We Asians are not only crazy rich, but also complicated. Now what does all this have to do with Chinese occultism? A lot, actually. Legalism, syncretized into the occult, means the codes of conduct many of these orthodox Taoist lineage traditions follow are very legalist and not so much Taoist. Although that's complicated too because Taoism says everything is Taoist so even legalism is Taoism but that mindfuck is for another time. It also means some Taoist attitudes toward demonology and demon summoning is heavily influenced by legalist philosophy. The methods and ritual instructions, more often than not taught in Taoist magic, presumes there is basically no inherent goodness or redeemable quality to demons and lower vibrational entities, and therefore you can pretty much, well, abuse them, imprison them, and so on. That's how legalism has had an impact on Chinese occultism, whereas if you look at Taoism cited from Laozi and Zhuangzi, I don't know if that attitude is the one you would logically or intuitively reach. Same with Buddhism. Take a more Buddhist approach, and again, I don't think this, yeah, it's totally okay to abuse the demons and exert authoritarian control over them, is the conclusion you would reach. I've offered my personal opinions and perspectives on demonology before in a previous video. If that interests you, I'll provide the link in the description box. I think the most notable practices Taoist sorcery gets from Buddhism would be meditation, to enhance and cultivate the practitioner's powers and hand mudras. Meditation trains the mind to control jing, qi, and shen, which you know all about because you've been awake and paying attention during this whole lecture, which can teach you how to harness more potent life force that you can channel into your magical practice. Hand mudras are then believed to more productively channel life force and craft. When it comes to whether or not to work with hand mudras, I think it's a matter of personal style. The bottom line is you need to be able to move the flow of energy in a direction at will in a way that's very controlled and methodical. That's kind of Ritual Magic 101. So for a lot of practitioners, hand mudras or wands or daggers, whatever, are what do it for you. Inasmuch as legalism is evident in Chinese occultism, so is Confucianism, because Confucianism is such a deeply ingrained part of the collective Chinese consciousness, it's going to have an impact on the practice of occultism. Confucianism emphasizes harmony in relationships, and through maintaining harmony within relationships, you can bring harmony to social order. How do you bring harmony to relationships? By understanding personal responsibility. There is one key aspect of Confucianist ideals I want to focus on in our discussion. Chinese occultism, and here I'm also including lineages of both esoteric Buddhist and esoteric Taoist traditions, stress and overstress the importance of the master-student relationship, and that's very Confucianist. In lineaged esoteric traditions, the master-student relationship is the most important relationship in your spiritual development. I wonder if any of us in the 21st century can even wrap our minds around the Confucianist concept of master-student. On one hand, if your teacher said to you, jump off that cliff, you jump off that cliff. If your teacher subjects you to menial labor and all but turns you into an indentured servant, you do it. You never question or second guess your teacher. The loyalty, faith, and trust you place in your teacher is unconditional. If your teacher decides to beat the shit out of you, you take that beating. But, as nutso as that sounds, the responsibility a teacher owes a student is his life. You fail as a teacher if your student does not surpass your own abilities. You fail as a teacher if any undue harm comes on to your students. If it came down to it, there should be no question or doubt that the teacher will sacrifice his life for his student. Some of the lineages I know of which are exclusionary, put as one of their reasons for not initiating non-Chinese and not even disclosing their existence to non-Chinese, is because they don't believe a true understanding of that master-student relationship can be had by, you know, non-Chinese, people who don't have a subconscious, innate comprehension of Confucianism. I'm not saying I agree, but I certainly do see their point. How exactly can Taoism and the tenets of Taoist philosophy, Buddhism and its religious doctrines and Confucian ideals be differentiated from each other, and which might you feel to be more resonant with you? Recall in your mind the taste of vinegar. How would you describe it? Is it sour, bitter, or sweet? Pick one. No, seriously, right now, pick one. Because there's an old Chinese saying. Confucius, the Buddha, and Lao Tzu each in turn took a sip of vinegar. Confucius remarked that the vinegar was sour. The Buddha remarked that it was bitter. Meanwhile, Lao Tzu said that the vinegar was sweet. So who did you end up aligning with, Confucius, the Buddha, or Lao Tzu? Now that you think about it, how much is your philosophy of life and maybe even your approach to your occult practices similar to the figure you picked? One of the reasons why the practice of Chinese occultism varies so much from region to region, province to province and why there's such a localized practice of Chinese folk religion is because of this prevailing belief in local land spirits. The mountains and trees, lakes, rivers, all features of landform around where you live have spirits and those spirits will have a significant impact on your life in the way Your geographical location of residence right now has an impact on your life and lifestyle. This is also an animistic approach to feng shui. You may or may not have heard about the regional folk religions of China where there's a little bit of Taoism that threads these religions together across the landscape of the culture, but how each religion looks is unique and different from the names of the gods, meaning different names for the thunder god, different names for the same rain god, different names for heaven, hell, the underworld regions, and so on. Religious practice and, by extension, regional occult practices are going to be very responsive to the specific land spirits local to a practitioner. That is why Taoist sorcery and Chinese occultism in one region of China looks totally different from Taoist sorcery and Chinese occultism in another region of China. Fundamental concepts of Taoist metaphysics, which we covered previously, get syncretized on the local level with the regional land spirits and are heavily impacted by the land you live on. Offerings you put on an altar, for example, vary so much from province to province. If you live close to a large water body, fish will be an offering. Some traditions will offer beef to their ancestors and gods. Other traditions would consider that absolute sacrilege, and yet all of them are Chinese. Do you pray facing east for the wind gods, or do you look west or north or south? Well. Given the varying climates in China, from cold temperate to tropical and the diverse landforms, it depends entirely on where you live. I think arguably the best advice I can give to anyone is to attain a mindfulness for the spirits local to your area, and while that can sound like crazy talk, primitive religious superstitious belief, listen through what I'm trying to say to the part that might actually make some sense to you. Go out and explore your region when you can. Visit local mountains, caves, major bodies of water, and intuit how these landforms so close to where you live could impact the whole vicinity of where you live. The science part makes sense, right? It obviously affects weather. There can be erosion issues and so on. Earth Science 101. The spiritual part runs parallel to Earth Science, now pulling that through into religious theory, if this lake or this mountain so many miles away from your home can still have an environmental impact over your county or province, how might you as a practitioner call upon that power or harness that power as in a metaphysical way? Branches, stones, and vegetation around powerful landforms where you live, especially if you've cultivated a relationship with the spirits of those landforms as a priest or priestess, will hold the most power in your spellcrafting, will lend a lot of power in your ritual or ceremonial work, and can even influence the accuracy of your divination. So I think if you're interested at all in truly practicing Taoist magic, the best advice I can give is to get to know the nature spirits from your regional environment and around your home. And finally, witchcraft. Hey guys, this is just as difficult and tenuous to define in Eastern traditions as it is for you in Western traditions. So with that said, yes, witchcraft drawing upon those local land spirits and local flora or fauna characteristic of the region, witches are a little more dialed in to innate psychic abilities, attuned to that universal consciousness, and have a slightly more magnified ability in, as we talked theoretically about earlier, telekinesis and telepathy, but on a spirit level, meaning telekinetically moving around spirit energies, controlling the ebb and flow of spirit and telepathy, having a keener understanding or empathic understanding of how people, animals, and even the spirits within land formations feel. This is just a fun one. Paper poppets. Paper poppets were commonly fashioned out of rice paper. Particular blended herbal ointments, blood, ash, or writing and sigils would be applied to the poppet to empower it. I mentioned this one because I saw it quite prevalently in Japan, where there are very similar occult or esoteric practices as you would find in China and Taiwan, due to the similarities between Shinto and Taoism. There were really interesting differences in practice. In Japan, I got the sense you didn't have to tear the shape of the poppet out of the rice paper by hand, you could in theory just cut it out with a pair of scissors. I was taught it had to be torn out by hand. Another interesting difference is what you had seen pictured earlier on screen depicted the practice of spellcrafting with paper puppets for blessings like improved health, romance, career success, that kind of thing. I was taught it was pretty much reserved for malevolent craft or baneful intentions. The point here is practitioners of the same craft, but coming from different backgrounds will practice it different ways, have differing approaches to that same craft, and both will work powerfully for the intended purpose. There really isn't anything to be gained by going around, pointing fingers, saying, oh, you're doing it wrong, and I'm the one doing it right. In witchcraft, there are just so, so many factors at play. You cannot judge another witch's craft, not unless you know 100% where that witch is coming from. And yep, that's an important lesson to learn about Eastern occultism, or maybe even occultism in general. I don't know. Necromancy is another feature, I think, of witchcraft, but what constitutes necromancy can run the whole gamut. Is mediumship, where one makes spirit contact with a deceased, a form of necromancy? Or is necromancy a word reserved for those attempting to raise the dead, or the belief that the spirit or soul of one who is dead can be summoned and become physically present during a ritual? In Taoist metaphysics, every individual has two facets of the soul, the Hun and the Po. This is called the concept of soul dualism. Hun is the Yang aspect of the soul. The Hun is that facet of the soul encoded to reincarnate. It is the kernel of you that is inherently divine and therefore by nature connected to heaven. Po is the yin facet of your soul. The Po is that facet of your soul that is earthbound, thus Chinese necromancy is about calling upon or summoning that Po. What I also hear frequently associated with Chinese occultism, even today, is exorcisms. Historically, much of Chinese occultism and Taoist sorcery was rooted in exorcism because every ailment and form of bad luck was attributed to a demon. Physical and mental sickness were both attributed to demonic possession. Bad behavior was attributed to demonic possession. General bad luck experienced in any area of life could get attributed to a haunting by a demon or hungry ghost. Thus, the objective of Taoist magic was summarily a form of exorcism. A large body of the historic literature on Fu talismans and Chinese sigil crafting is based around exorcistic rituals. How do you exorcise this type of demon? How do you exorcise that type of demon. Today, I don't think you can say exorcisms are common, but you also can't say it's a practice that's been entirely eradicated, especially when you go to poorer and more rural regions of Asia. My personal observation and opinion is that exorcisms often take the place of proper psychiatric care, especially where proper psychiatric care isn't accessible or even affordable. I will always prefer the science-based healthcare over the supernatural. But I think because of my specific angle of personal understanding when it comes to exorcisms, I guess maybe I'm just not as quick to dismiss it. If you've ever met a truly masterful, experienced, skilled exorcist, not a quack, but the real deal, their level of understanding when it comes to the human psyche, I would dare say does not lose to the professional training of a licensed psychiatrist. Yeah, I said it. Another significant feature, and at this point, I don't even know if this is witchcraft or just occult practices in general, oh man, please do not ding me for my categorization system, I know it's shit. Anyway, it's astral projection. In a lot of the medieval grimoires I came across during my research for my book, Tao of Craft, I came across a lot of astral projection. I gotta be honest, before I started the research, just in terms of personal and anecdotal experiences, I had no idea astral projection was such a big thing. Very quickly here, the distinction I make between pathworking and astral projection is pathworking is an abstract theoretical model, like the eight trigrams of the Ba Gua, or any of the hexagrams in the I Ching, and you apply a form of creative visualization to manifest a pictorial representation of that theoretical model, to better understand the theoretical model. Astral projection presumes that where your astral body is going is a real place, and real does get used quite loosely here. So kingdoms in heaven are real places you can astral project to. Realms of hell and the underworld are real places you can astral project to. And then of course, there's this notion that you can send a part of your spirit body, the astral body, along with your mind and part of your consciousness to any other part of this world, even universe. But any individual practitioner's skill level at astral projection might vary. Magical or ceremonial practices often include astral projection. One documented example of a ritual or spell, and I'm pretty sure I wrote all about it and cited the original text it came from in my book, but It's been a couple of years. There are set up rituals you need to do in your temple or workspace, but then you take this talisman, a sigil, hold onto it, and then astral project to a rival group's temple, and there your astral body uses the astral aspect of the talisman you're holding onto to do things to the astral component of the temple, which in magical theory causes something to happen to the physical construction of the temple. You then return back to your physical body, back to safety, and complete the ritual which is supposed to result in the destruction of that rival group's temple. Ancient Chinese witch wars. Love it! In the final installment of this series, we're going to talk about contemporary Taoist magic. The next video lecture is going to cover eight practical consideration points. The first will be patron divinities. Then we'll cover altar setup. How do you empower your altar with a Kaiguang ritual? Some thoughts on ancestor veneration, incorporation divinatory practices into your life, easy practical tips on meditation that I promise you will take your abilities, whatever they may be, to the next level. Hand mudras, and just an overview of essential ritual tools in Taoist practice. I'll see you soon.